Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Typically what we see when we look at coffee consumption and cardiovascular disease risk or cardiovascular mortality is something we refer to as a J-shaped curve. And what this refers to is if we're plotting on a graph along the x-axis coffee consumption and then along the y-axis going up risk of cardiovascular disease or risk of a cardiovascular event, for example. And so this J-shape to that curve therefore means that when we go from zero coffee consumption to an increased amount of coffee, we actually get a risk reduction and so some protective benefit as we increase from zero up to a number of cups of coffee per day. If we continue going more and more and more, that risk starts to bend back up and increases again. That's Danny Lennon and this is the Plant Proof Podcast. My beautiful friends, here we are again. Time to embark on another episode together. I hope that you've been keeping well, staying healthy. If you're a first time listener, welcome. So glad to have you join us finally. I'm Simon Hill, your show host, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author of The Proof is in the Plants. So here's the deal. Each week on this show, I sit down together with you with an inspiring guest. Typically, that's doctors, dietitians, nutrition scientists, etc. to talk about nutrition and ultimately how you and I can make better decisions for our health and for the health of all life around us. And then midweek, I drop a condensed bite-sized throwback to a previous episode with lots of golden nuggets on a specific topic. Before I tell you about today's guest and introduce the topic that we'll be discussing, a quick note to share some news with you. I think that you may have heard of this guy, Rich Roll. Am I right? I thought so. Rich has been on this show twice now and over the years has grown into a really, really good friend of mine. He hosts what is arguably the most influential, most impactful podcast in the world, a space where he has highly intelligent conversations on a very diverse range of topics that all typically coalesce around a central theme of improving the human experience, finding more meaning in life, and simply doing better for ourselves, for our fellow humans, for our animal friends, and for the planet. It's safe to say that it's by far the podcast that has had the biggest effect on my life, and I know that many others feel the same way. What I've also come to learn as my friendship with Rich has grown is that he really is the real deal. As he is on air, he is off air, which I personally find very refreshing and inspiring. So it was a a huge honor, of course, when 
he asked me to join him on his show to chat all things nutrition science, which of course is a topic that, as you know, I have a lot of love for. I tell you this because the episode came out yesterday, so you can find it now on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, episode 638 of the Rich Roll podcast. It's a three and a half hour long conversation. We dive into a lot of different topics that I think you will find super interesting, or hope you do anyway. So check that out and please do reach out to Rich and myself on the socials and let us know how it landed. Okay, so this episode, Danny Lennon. Danny has a bachelor's degree in biological sciences and physics, a master's in nutrition science, and is the host of Sigma Nutrition Radio, his podcast, which is really focused on diving super deep into various nutrition topics, often at an academic level and with academic researchers, to make sense of data and ultimately arrive at evidence-based recommendations. One of these topics being coffee, hence this episode. Given I get an enormous amount of inboxes and emails asking me about coffee, I thought, why not get Danny on to walk through what the science says about this uber-popular beverage that most of us drink? And just quickly, thank you to everyone who does send me emails and inboxes with topic suggestions. So, coffee, is it something that we should be drinking? What does the best evidence suggest? Well, let's find out. Episode number 173 with Danny Lennon. Please do enjoy and I'll catch you on the other side. Danny Lennon, welcome to the show. Simon, thanks you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm really, really pleased to be able to do this, to sit down with you. I'm a huge fan of Sigma Nutrition. I've mentioned that on my show many times before, both the podcast and the statements that you put out. I think they're such a, a valuable resource for people. So thank you so much for all of the wonderful content. And I know the tremendous amount of time that must go into creating all of that. Thank you so much for saying that. First of all, it really does mean a lot. We we try to put as much time as is needed to give people a, a comprehensive source of good quality information. And so when people acknowledge that, it's a, a wonderful feeling. So thank you for that. Very much appreciated. So today our topic is coffee. But before we, we kind of jump into that, given it's your first time on the show, perhaps run me through your background, your path to nutrition, what inspired that, and then ultimately what compelled you to create Sigma Nutrition. In terms of how I got into nutrition and, and into the kind of work I'm doing now specifically, I think it really started with an overlap of 
two areas of the Venn diagram. One was my own interest in sports and athletic performance growing up. Um, And so from a young age, I played a a bunch of different sports. That originally started out as playing a lot of soccer. In my later teen years, a lot of Gaelic football. And so for your Australian audience, they might be familiar with the Compromise Rules series and how sometimes uh, some of our guys head down there. And then I suppose getting into college, I was getting interested in things like Brazilian jiu-jitsu, starting lifting weights in the gym to help me with my on-field performance. And so that was kind of my main passion outside of education. And then when I first went to college or university, I was studying science education, so specifically biology and physics. And so that was my first real exposure to these things called peer-reviewed research papers and understanding how to go and read those. And so as I was learning that, in my early days in in college, I started thinking, wow, there must be stuff that I can go and read that's objective and scientific about my own interests. And so I started messing around, looking at stuff around sports performance that obviously led into some stuff around nutrition. And I just started getting really interested in this nutrition stuff. And really the the passion for that developed over a, a number of years. And I continue to really read about nutrition and learn about it as a side hobby to anything else. Fast forward a few years, I graduated with my science education degree, started actually teaching biology and physics at a a secondary school. So that in Ireland, that's students up to the age of 18. But throughout that year, I was kind of realizing, I don't know if this teaching thing is for me. And uh, so my contract for that was a one-year contract. And so the end of that school year, I decided, you know what, I think I'm going to quit teaching and I want to go back and pursue this nutrition thing because I'm spending so much of my spare time reading and learning about it anyway. And so I enrolled in a master's degree program in nutritional sciences in University College Cork. And uh, that was kind of the start of the nutrition thing. Went and studied that. Off the back of that, I'd been doing a bit of nutrition consulting, started doing a bit of writing about nutrition. And then I suppose a year after graduating, uh, started Sigma Nutrition formally. And as part of that, some of the content I wanted to put out, I started this thing called a podcast, which at the time in early 2014, wasn't as big as podcasting is now. And uh, luckily for me, that was the form or the, the medium that I really enjoy doing and seem to get traction early. So I focused most of my effort on that. And I think that's how most people eventually came to find out about Sigma Nutrition and everything else has stemmed from there. So yeah, that's really the the initial way into it. And here we are some 400 episodes later. I saved the, the latest one that you are uh... You just released on type 2 diabetes. I've bookmarked that to make sure I can get stuck into that. Your tagline is where science matters. And I want to pose a question to you. It's one that I'm often asked and and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. In a world where seemingly, you know, everyone has science these days, every blog online starts with studies show, how does a, a lay person without the time to work out how to read nutrition science, how do they work out who is communicating science with integrity, you know, and is being objective and therefore is giving out really credible information that they can trust and and act on with a large degree of confidence? Ben, this is the question. This is the one I stress about most because it's so incredibly difficult and the nature of something that is pseudoscientific is 
what makes it so difficult, right? It's not stuff that is obviously nonsense. It's packaged up in a way that masquerades as science. And that's why it's full of half-truths and things that sound scientific from someone who's incredibly knowledgeable that for most people in the general audience, they, they would think, well, how can I question this person that seems so confident in what they're saying? And really, without a deep grasp of science, I don't know if there's any 100% bulletproof way to do so, but there are certain heuristics and things to look out for that I think can be quite useful. I think when you see people that talk in absolutes about anything with very strong statements, that's sometimes where you might need to pause and reflect. So does someone have a certain type of dietary approach or even worse still a certain type of individual supplement or certain food that they promises fixes everything? Similarly, do they demonize one particular type of food as the cause of all chronic disease? And if we only took care of this one issue, then everything is fixed. Does the answer seem overly simplistic in how to tackle it? Because these issues that we're facing in terms of chronic disease burden are incredibly complex in how to go about fixing it. On one level, sure, we might know that the problems are, are very clear and, and we probably agree on most of that stuff. How we go about changing that becomes very difficult on both an individual level, population-wide level, and then getting into policy and so on. So if someone has a very simplistic um, solution or this one food group that we now are going to take out of your diet is going to solve all chronic disease, that's another red flag. So I think really all we can go on is what are those general heuristics or red flags that might indicate that this information is poor. And it's one of the areas that we've tried to focus a bit more now of highlighting some of the usual tactics that are, are used in pseudoscientific endeavors. And usually it's, it's packaged up as a really emotional narrative about something that paints a certain food or a certain group of people as the villains that have tried to trick you into eating in a certain way. And so there are certain patterns that we can see, but on a broad level, it's, it's really difficult to say, just know these couple of things and you'll easily be able to tell that something is, is nonsense. It's, it's just very, very difficult. No, I think that's some, some really valuable advice though. There are some characteristics that at least people can look out for. That one about absolutes is so critical. You know, absolutes do sell though, right? You know, the oversimplified messaging is often easier to land. It's a little sexier, but look out for the people that are discussing some of the nuance and aren't talking in absolutes as much. And you're more likely going to be receiving information from someone who is being a little more objective. Now, the topic of coffee is perhaps a, a good example. You know, there probably are better examples of walking through some of these areas of nutrition where there are very different polarizing views, like seed oils, for example. But we'll use coffee today. You know, sure, there are lots of people who talk about coffee being very health promoting. And then there are others who talk more about potential concerns. So I am interested today to sort of walk through the science with you and hopefully clear up some of the confusion so people know where the science does lie, what we do and what we don't know. Why don't we start with the obvious question of what coffee is and, and why is it an interesting drink from a nutrition perspective for us to look into? Yeah, this is a perfect question to frame it. And uh, I think we oftentimes just think of coffee as this really 
tasty beverage that gives us a hit of caffeine and makes us feel energetic, which of course it, it can do those things. But why it becomes interesting from a nutrition standpoint is for two main reasons which intersect. One is just the fact that it contains nutrition. So beyond just the caffeine content, this is a beverage that contains micronutrients. So it contains some amounts of, for example, potassium and niacin and so on. So there is micronutrition in there. Probably more importantly, and as we'll probably discuss throughout this conversation, it also contains other compounds, bioactive compounds, that are not essential for survival like a micronutrient per se, but have very clear health benefits. And uh, polyphenols would be one big group of these. And I'm sure you've discussed numerous times on this podcast the, the impact of polyphenols within our diet and how that can have a, a health-promoting effect. And so while they're not essential in the same way a vitamin or mineral is, for example, if we get to a deficiency state of vitamin C or vitamin D, there's going to be a development of scurvy and rickets respectively. With these bioactive compounds that are in various foods, we're not seeing this immediate kind of onset from a deficiency of them per se, but they're best thought of as uh, we've described on our podcast more as lifespan essential as opposed to survival essential. So there's some potential benefit from consuming these certain bioactive compounds. Now we know these are in a bunch of foods and namely good sources would be things like herbs and spices, these darkly colored fruits and berries, various colorful vegetables. Uh, there's some types of these bioactive compounds in types of seeds like in flaxseed or in certain types of nuts. So with all these types of plant foods, we see these phytochemicals and one big class of those is polyphenols. But interestingly with coffee, it's actually a really good source of a number of polyphenols and in particular a group called chlorogenic acids and it's a good rich source of those. Now why this becomes an important kind of public health issue is on one side, we know that coffee has a really high consumption rate in most populations, right? If you look across different cultures and different countries, there's a lot of coffee drinking that's going on. And the amount of people that drink coffee within any given population is a relatively high percentage. If you marry that up then with what we also know about the average diet, particularly in westernized countries, relative to what we would suggest from dietary guidelines, we know most people are under consuming vegetables, under consuming fruits, under consuming nuts and seeds, lots of sources of these various polyphenols. And so for those people, particularly on a, let's say a less nutritious diet, coffee might be contributing a substantial amount of these beneficial compounds. And so for that reason, it's interesting to consider from a nutrition and health perspective in terms of the impacts it may have. Now, there's also, as you mentioned, some causes for concern that people may outline. And so for the same reason, it's worth considering uh, for that reason, because we don't want a beverage that is so ubiquitously consumed to continue to be consumed in large amounts if there are real causes for concern. So for those reasons, I think it's it's very much worth investigating. Yeah, I think in some of the papers that I've read uh, in various countries around the world, coffee provides the, the highest amount of antioxidants in the diet, which I think will be mind-blowing for many people listening. So let's step through this. Let's go through some of the findings from various observational studies and then we can move into perhaps some of the concerns as well. Maybe we start here with cardiovascular health and often 
I come across people asking me about consuming coffee and can it negatively affect blood lipids, specifically cholesterol, and does it affect blood pressure? So why don't we start there? Does consuming coffee regularly at a certain amount negatively affect blood pressure and cholesterol? Yeah, great question. And like you say, these really are the two main concerns when it comes to cardiovascular health that people tend to point to. In relation to blood pressure, that seems to be in connection with the caffeine content of coffee, given that it's such a strong contributor of caffeine to our diets. And then with blood lipids, it actually relates to some of those bioactive compounds that I mentioned, but this time to certain ones that may have negative impacts. So I think first on the blood pressure issue, we know that caffeine can lead to an increase in blood pressure. However, this is typically when we're looking at an acute setting of if we dose someone with a certain amount of caffeine and then look at the immediate response to their blood pressure. Now, as we've just said, though, coffee itself is much more than just caffeine. It's this beverage that contains many other nutrients. And so what we're probably more concerned about is not after we give someone a caffeine pill, does their blood pressure acutely go up by a certain amount? What we really care for in long-term health is if I am a habitual coffee consumer, will continuing to have my normal amount of coffee daily over a number of years put me at higher risk of developing hypertension, so chronically elevated blood pressure. And so when we differentiate between those two exposures, i.e. like acute use of caffeine versus regular consumption of coffee, we actually don't seem to have that increased risk of hypertension or doesn't seem to lead to hypertension if you're a regular coffee consumer. And so this has been done when you have uh, coffee intake compared with um, dietary patterns without coffee or when you compare uh, regular coffee versus decaf coffee um, over time. It doesn't seem to have any difference in terms of someone developing hypertension or not. So that's the kind of good side on the blood pressure issue that normal habitual coffee consumption doesn't seem to cause hypertension despite an acute change in blood pressure that can happen after caffeine consumption. It's interesting. This gets me thinking about oils and obviously, again, another polarizing topic. And, you know, you'll see people point to studies that show acute impaired endothelial cell function after consuming oil. However, the more chronic exposure looking at people consuming oils in diets over a longer period of time show reductions in risk of cardiovascular disease. In that scenario, I often mentioned that when you perform exercise, even during sleep, if you were to measure endothelial function, you could see impaired function in an acute manner. And I'm sure not many people would suggest that exercise and sleep is bad for cardiovascular health. And in this example, you're using exercise will also increase your blood pressure acutely. But again, it's a beneficial thing in the long run for cardiovascular health. Right. And, and I mean, that's one of the things that gets tied in with caffeine use as an ergogenic aid within sports performance. A lot of that is down to its stimulatory effect and it has effects on arousal, for example. Um, but part of that might also be playing in here that a slight elevation in blood pressure doesn't do any harm, at least to, to sporting performance. And so thinking about that big picture. And I think it's something that you've probably referenced a number of times because it's so crucial is when we're thinking about making conclusions, 
thinking about what do we actually care about. We think about general dietary patterns, we think about actual foods, and then we think about the actual outcomes of interest to us. And the further we get away from them, sure, we can find out interesting things mechanistically or about individual nutrients, but we don't hang our hat just on those because the further we move away from the real outcomes of interest and actual foods and dietary patterns, then the further we're moving away from something that's actually uh, applicable to what we want to answer. So yeah, I think that's a, a really important point. So blood lipids, it's been widely documented that coffee contains these diterpenes and that they can affect cholesterol levels. Walk me through that. Sure. So some of these uh, bioactive compounds I mentioned earlier, there's a certain type called diterpenes, as you say. The two main ones that we care here about are cafestol and kaweol. And these are found in the lipid component of coffee. So the kind of oily part of coffee or the oily residue people may notice, that's where these are typically found. And so there's intervention trials where we can actually look at this. So some will use certain types of coffee extracts. Some will use the oil component for coffee. So for example, they would take a couple of grams of a placebo oil. Then they would take a couple of grams of coffee oil. And then they would have a couple of grams of the coffee oil, but with these compounds extracted or taken out of them. And we can compare the impacts of these on lipid levels, so blood cholesterol and and blood triglycerides, over a number of weeks. And indeed, in those settings where you give people high amounts of these particular compounds, you do see increases in cholesterol and and triglycerides. So on the face of that, that as something that we should at least investigate and potentially be concerned about. The big questions are, does this always happen? What is the magnitude of that change? And how does this actually impact cardiovascular disease risk? So the first one, so does this always happen? One of the cool things we know is that because those compounds are found within that lipid component or that fat component of the coffee, depending on the preparation method or the brewing method that's used, you can have dramatically different concentrations of these diterpenes. So most notably, if you use any type of filtering method, which is most popular in most westernized countries, I would say, so like a paper filter or a steel filter or so on, then you you actually end up with that final coffee brew containing very little, if any, of these diterpenes because that filtering process has actually made sure they don't make it into the final product because it's stopped that kind of lipid component getting through. On the other end, you have certain cultural preparations of coffee, uh, most notably in places like Turkey or in Greece, where they essentially use a decanting method. So you actually aren't filtering anything through. So you actually get a much higher concentration of these. Similarly, if you use a plunger pot or a French press, the same thing, you're not filtering out like with a paper filter. And so the concentration of these compounds is going to be higher in those cases. And there's been a couple of papers that then have based on these mechanistic changes we see or some of the observed changes we see in some of those interventions, that if we were to map the differences in those concentrations, we can kind of estimate what that might do to someone's cholesterol levels. And from memory, I think in in one of those papers, they said if you're having five cups of coffee a day and you were to be consuming one of those high cafestol and kaweol preparations, for example, a a plunger pot, that might in the long term lead to a 0.2 millimolar per liter increase in uh, cholesterol levels. So something that's not huge, but it's also not completely negligible depending on what someone's baseline level 
of cholesterol is. Whereas on the other end, if you use any type of filtering method or even instant coffee is really low in it as well, um, or you use kind of espresso, any of those types of methods have such little amount of these compounds that the change in lipids is basically zero. And so then it becomes a kind of question of context of how much coffee is someone drinking? What is their baseline level of blood lipids? Are they actively trying to get them down as low as possible right now? Have they recently maybe started drinking coffee and seen a bump up in their cholesterol? And are they at a stage where their blood cholesterol levels are something that they need to worry about? There's also probably going to be a huge inter-individual variation here as well. So some people might see a bigger increase. Some people might see no increase. So overall, there's the potential for a slight change here, but then we have to take kind of step back and look at the context of who needs to be worried about that. And then I think what I would tend to do is to take that as something interesting in relation to changes in blood cholesterol, keep that in mind. But then for the bigger picture, again, step back and say, well, what do we know about coffee consumption and cardiovascular disease risk? And then it might even come down to an individual decision, right? If someone's actively trying to get their blood cholesterol levels down or have been advised to do so or struggling to get it down and they have a huge amount of coffee made from one of those like plunger pot or French press methods, then it might be a pretty easy transition for them to start changing to a filtering method. For someone else who isn't experiencing any of those negative side effects, then it's not something where we should say, never use your French press ever again to make a coffee. So I think I would kind of have people think of it on an individual basis based on some of those contextual uh, criteria. Sure. And if we zoom out from here and look at cardiovascular outcomes, what do we see? Do we see any difference in terms of risk of heart attack or stroke or, or just overall cardiovascular events between non-coffee drinkers and coffee drinkers? Yeah, so this is one of the really cool areas in that there's actually a really good body of literature on coffee and cardiovascular outcomes when we look at the nutritional epidemiology. And it seems really, really consistent uh, most of the time, which is great and it gives us a bit more confidence in that. And typically what we see when we look at coffee consumption and whether that's cardiovascular disease risk or cardiovascular mortality is something we refer to as a J-shaped curve. And so for people, they can keep that shape of a J in mind. And what this refers to is if we're plotting on a graph along the x-axis coffee consumption, so along the bottom coffee consumption, and then along the y-axis going up the risk of cardiovascular disease or risk of a cardiovascular event, for example. And so this J-shape to that curve therefore means that when we go from zero coffee consumption to an increased amount of coffee, we actually get a risk reduction. And so some protective benefit as we increase from zero up to a number of cups of coffee per day. But then at a certain point, if we continue going more and more and more, that risk starts to bend back up and increases again. So it seems that sweet spot for the lowest risk or the most protective impact seems to be around two to four cups of coffee per day is where we get that lowest risk. And so then either side of that, you start to see increases in risk. And, and there's probably a couple of reasons for that. And there's probably some that people would add in. But in my mind, there's at least a couple that we've mentioned already and, and that we will mention that we could probably highlight here. So on, on one end, why would it be that if we go from not drinking coffee at all to consuming two to four cups per day that we see this risk reduction or a benefit? 
Well, as we've already discussed, it has a number of these nutrients and particularly these polyphenols. We know they can do a ton of things around the body and have a potential benefit. And layered into the fact that we know that a lot of people are not getting a lot of polyphenols from food sources, or at least as much as they could have based on a diet that we would typically advise, they might be the ones that are seeing the biggest benefit to this, right? So um, you could probably make a strong case that if someone was getting a really polyphenol-rich diet from their foods, that the addition of coffee might have a less pronounced effect than someone who is getting a very low polyphenol concentration from their diet. On the other end, there's probably a number of things that are going on that associate with really high levels of coffee consumption. Just one that we can mention, because it might come up later, is obviously the really high caffeine content. And then beyond the total caffeine content, if you have someone who consumes, let's say, eight cups of coffee a day, it's highly likely that the timing and how they structure that is going to be probably suboptimal, right? It's very unlikely someone drinks eight, nine, ten cups of coffee a day, but has them all before noon. It's highly likely they have it all throughout the day, and therefore there's someone who is continuing to drink coffee late into the evening, which can have some deleterious effects, which we might revisit in a while. But overall, we see this pretty consistent J-shaped curve of risk between coffee and cardiovascular disease risk, and with that kind of sweet spot on average being two to four cups of coffee a day. I think this is a, a really important reminder that if you're too reductionist in your approach with looking at nutrition, for example, you could write off coffee just by looking at its effect on LDL cholesterol total cholesterol. But we have to also remember that food is a matrix. And so it is important to zoom in and, and look at different nutrients, but then look at how that food acts as a whole when we consume it, rather than uh, assuming that we're going to, to see negative health outcomes based on looking at an isolated part of that food only. Yeah, perfect point. So uh, as we've outlined that we could look at an intervention of isolated oil from coffee and then over a number of weeks we see a bump up in, in cholesterol. But again, when we zoom out and say, well, what is the impact of consuming coffee over the long term? We actually don't see these negatives on cardiovascular disease risk. And as you say, that's when we take the whole dietary pattern into account, that probably explains a lot of that. Okay, so that's cardiovascular disease, looking at blood pressure, cholesterol, cardiovascular outcomes, and that's really useful information. What about coffee and, and other common chronic conditions? So probably the, the next biggest area that I think there's been a, a lot of literature on is, is in relation to a number of neurological diseases. And this would in, include Alzheimer's and, and Parkinson's in particular. And I think these are useful to focus on because we see slightly different outcomes here and slightly different strengths of evidence, but we also see the potential for different mechanisms to be at play. So in relation to Alzheimer's disease risk, the epidemiology here is kind of mixed. So it's not as strong as with cardiovascular disease and it's, it's not as strong as we'll see with Parkinson's in that we have a number of epidemiological studies suggesting that a lifetime of regular coffee consumption may reduce risk of Alzheimer's disease. And so you see some studies again that exhibit this J-shaped curve that we see with cardiovascular disease, also with Alzheimer's. And again, that kind of two to four cups, two, uh, two to five cups maybe being that middle zone, that most protective impact. However, then we have other associational data that suggests that there 
isn't really a clear association between uh, coffee consumption and dementia and coffee consumption and cognitive decline. And so there is some conflicts here that makes it more difficult for us to be really clear in the protective uh, effect like we could talk about with cardiovascular disease. However, I think it's it's promising and it's probably, again, down to the source of these polyphenols because we know that other polyphenol-rich uh, diets and polyphenol-rich foods are really tightly linked with things like Alzheimer's and dementia. Now, probably some of the difference that we're seeing here is that when we are, so far I've been generally saying this word polyphenols, but really this is thousands of different compounds and each different subtype of that likely has different effects. So if we look at the rich source of polyphenols in something like blueberries, we have these anthocyanins. We have really good literature around uh, cognitive decline and dementia in that area. Whereas with coffee, we've mainly been talking about their kind of richest polyphenol sources, these chlorogenic acids, which may still have impacts, but it might not be on the same mechanisms and, and the same outcomes. And so I think it's really important when we're talking about polyphenols to realize there's a lot we don't know. And there's probably a number of different effects from different compounds. And so the polyphenols that are really high in blueberries will be different to that in coffee and therefore why we might see a difference. So a polyphenol-rich diet I do think is very beneficial for Alzheimer's disease risk reduction. But again, it probably comes down to what are the food sources we're looking at. And there's probably some of those other foods that we can mention that are probably preferable over coffee. I think the other neurological condition that has a good bit of literature here is Parkinson's disease. And with Parkinson's disease, we actually, a number of papers seems to suggest there is a, a dose-response relationship here. Seeing as you increase coffee consumption, you actually get a decreased risk of Parkinson's. Now, the reason why this is important or interesting, at least, to bring up is that the mechanism of risk reduction here seems to mainly center around the caffeine content as opposed to things like polyphenols or the nutrition of it, uh, which was mainly what was going on with cardiovascular disease and, and maybe with dementia. Whereas with Parkinson's, it seems to be caffeine is, is the target for most of that. The mechanistic explanation. That seems to be the causal factor here, that when you compare it to the coffee, you actually don't see that same risk reduction for, for Parkinson's. Now, some of the, the deep mechanistic work is, is beyond my pay grade, but essentially if we think about what caffeine is doing, we know it's a psychoactive compound, right? It's having direct effects in the brain. And so therefore it has a plausible mechanism of action to reduce risk. And so again, it, it seems that some of the studies suggesting a dose response, the higher you go, the more risk reduction. Others seem to peter out about like three cups per day and then it kind of plateaus out and no further risk reduction there. So I think they're the two main big uh, neurological chronic diseases. There's some stuff around depression that gets tied in that's interesting that we could maybe discuss. But of all the chronic diseases, I think cardiovascular disease and some of the neurological diseases is where we have most of the good data right now. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. 
And one of those polyphenol-rich diets with some decent evidence for Alzheimer's dementia is the MIND diet, which I've spoken about on on this show before from uh, Martha Morris and uh, I believe the MAP study. And they showed in that cohort the highest adherence to the MIND diet resulted in a 53% relative risk reduction in developing Alzheimer's dementia. But as you say, that's a, that's a dietary pattern that's built around all of these polyphenol-rich foods of berries and dark leafy greens and lots and lots of color. So that's a, an important take-home note there. Uh, depression, I think we should jump into it and, and at least briefly cover it. What evidence is there that has looked at coffee consumption and how it can affect depression? Yeah, so with this, I, w- I would say the evidence maybe is not as robust as some of the others, but there is some that tends to move in the same direction. And again, it seems to suggest this kind of J-shaped curve of risk of that with a certain amount of coffee consumption, you get a kind of protective Impact. So relative to no coffee consumption, if we go to like two or three cups a day, 400 mils per day, you see this protection or this risk reduction of depression. And you see that in big cohorts like the Nurses Health Study. There was another big epidemiological study by Wang. And you see these risk reductions with coffee. But again, once it starts getting higher and higher, that risk starts to increase again. So exactly why this is, I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but it does seem that in at least a couple of those big cohorts, you do see a risk reduction with depression. And again, it might be down to some of these compounds that are found within coffee, but I don't think that's as uh, a robust as finding or mechanistically, uh, I'm unaware of exactly what might be going on there. And what about coffee and weight loss? Now, this is another one that quite often comes up. How does coffee affect appetite or body weight and and metabolism? Yeah. So as far as I'm aware, looking at some of the uh, epidemiology in this area, there's been at least some studies that would show that a higher consumption of coffee or caffeine more broadly can trend towards lower body weights or lower BMI. And the kind of reason put forth is one around, well, it has to influence energy balance in some way. And there's actually hypotheses for both sides of that. So on one side, we know that caffeine can uh, certainly acutely change energy expenditure. And then the other side would be, well, if caffeine or coffee more broadly can do something to change energy intake, i.e. does it suppress appetite in some way, then we're going to have a modification of energy balance and that might lead to a reduction in body weight or reduction in fat mass over time, or maybe even just prevent against the gain of of body weight over time. So I, I think any of the changes I've seen with when you stratify based on coffee consumption and compare that to say body weight or BMI, they're not exactly huge differences. So I, I wouldn't overly put too much in it. I think it's interesting to consider mechanistically what might be going on. There's certainly a, a few smaller trials that I've seen that have compared coffee to decaf coffee and then to a caffeinated kind of placebo. So essentially this would be like a water beverage with caffeine powder mixed through it. And so one that particularly comes to mind is they compared these three along with plain water. So they had four different conditions and did it in a a crossover manner. So 
all the participants did each one on four separate occasions. And they were looking at some of those hormones that relate to appetite. So we have three that primarily get looked at in this area. We have a hormone called ghrelin, which is an appetite hormone we can think of. So as ghrelin goes up, appetite goes up. We have a gut hormone called peptide YY or PYY. And as we get an increase in this, we actually get a suppression of hunger. And then we have a hormone called leptin, which is secreted by our fat cells. And as leptin levels go up, we would actually, again, get kind of suppression of hunger. So if we're seeing changes in these, we would have some plausible reason to believe that maybe coffee consumption could play a role here. Now, what they did in in this study was actually quite interesting in that they thought, well, we want to work out, is it something in coffee rather than just caffeine that might be having an impact on some of these hormones? So with the normal coffee and the decaf coffee and the caffeine containing water, they wanted to standardize them all for the same amount of caffeine. So they said, we're going to set this at six milligrams of caffeine for every kilogram of body weight in that person, and then give people whatever amount of these beverages we need. Now, because there's a lot less caffeine in decaf, that means that they had to use a lot more total coffee in the decaf group to get the same amount of caffeine as they did in the caffeinated group. And what we actually see in in some of those results is that the main finding was that the highest levels of that peptide YY, so that hormone that might suppress appetite, was found in that decaf condition. And so this kind of would show us that, well, if they're all matched for caffeine, it's not just caffeine that's playing a role here. And so why would the decaf have a bigger impact? And there's more coffee, so it's going to have more of those compounds that are within coffee. So maybe some of those compounds are having some of this effect. Now, again, trials like that tend to be relatively small in in size and the magnitude of some of the changes aren't huge. They did look at things like subjective hunger. So the way you would do that is use something called a visual analog scale. So it's basically like a scale from zero to a hundred and you could get asked someone based on this scale from like the most hungry you've ever been to the most full you've ever been in your life. Where on this scale are you uh, at this time point? And so that kind of matched up with what they were seeing with the peptide YY and that people's subjective hunger was lowest with the decaf condition. Now that would suggest that, yeah, there's maybe some compounds within coffee that are having a slight appetite suppressing effect, but how much that translates to actual meaningful differences over a long period of time for most people uh, for us to think if someone just starts drinking coffee, that is going to lead to meaningful changes in in fat mass, for example. I'm unsure, but certainly you'll get a lot of people anecdotally report that if they're going through a period of time where they're purposely restricting their intake or they're doing something like fasting and they find a, a black coffee useful, that might be part of it. Part of it might be placebo, uh, but certainly there's some reason to suggest that it might be some compounds in here, including those chlorogenic acids that could have some impacts on appetite. So that's interesting. The peptide YY hormone was higher in the decaf part of the trial compared to caffeinated coffee, regular coffee. Correct. So is that suggesting that the removal of caffeine in and of itself is affecting that hormone. What they actually did was because there's still some of that caffeine within the decaf coffee, they increased the amount of coffee grounds they gave in that condition so that there was the exact same amount of caffeine between those two groups. So when we had the caffeinated coffee and the decaf coffee, 
they actually were getting the same amount of caffeine, but there was a big difference. So it was like maybe 40 grams of normal coffee and then like 60 grams of decaf coffee to get the same amount. And so therefore, in the decaf condition, you have way more of these polyphenols and chlorogenic acids because you just have more coffee total. So that's why they were kind of able to hypothesize that, well, if there's a benefit in this group, it's probably because they had way more of these bioactive compounds consumed because they just had more total coffee, but just the same amount of caffeine, if that makes sense. Yeah, gotcha. That makes perfect sense. In terms of thinking a little more about what it may be about coffee that is protective against these various chronic disease states, talk to me about the microbiome. Do you think that it may be at least partly due to coffee's effect on the microbiome and and the potential downstream consequences of that? I mean, this is super interesting, but as with anything to do with the microbiome, it's it's so difficult to connect it to like a real concrete conclusion. Now, there is some really interesting work because it's based again on this mechanistic hypothesis, as you rightly outlined, that because we know coffee contains these chlorogenic acids and that these are polyphenols and they have a variety of um, impacts within the body, for example, anti-inflammatory or they act in an antioxidant manner, that this can have a real benefit. And some of the work done in the UK, I believe this at the University of Reading, it might be in Glenn Gibson's group, they did some in vitro work, which is essentially they have a situation in the lab where they can basically mimic how the human colon works. And then they can therefore look and study the microbiome in this kind of specific setting, although it's not actually within a human being. It's really kind of cool. And so they looked at the impact on coffee and the growth of various different bacteria in the microbiome. And One of the interesting things that they found is that it does seem to play an impact when you introduce more of these chlorogenic acids through the medium of coffee. It leads to short-chain fatty acids get produced, you get beneficial impacts, you get increased diversity of some of these microbiota. The ones that we know seem to be beneficial tended to increase in nature, for example. And so that kind of a simulation would suggest that if this is happening, they are beneficial things to go on in the gut. And then we know that those things tend to get, have knock-on effects for all other systems of the body. And I'm sure certainly uh, Yurikana has gone into really good detail of the importance of impacts on the gut microbiome and how we can influence that through diet and fiber and so on. And then all the major benefits we get from that. So certainly there's a plausible reason to think that one of the ways that coffee consumption is playing a beneficial role could be through potentially providing polyphenols and then therefore having a beneficial impact on the gut microbiome. But again, the nature of where that work is at right now is difficult to draw real strong conclusions. It's certainly fascinating to me, but the kind of implications of the work of the the group in Reading is, is still up in the air, I think. There's a paper that Professor Christopher Gardner was a part of and it speaks to essentially what you just went through with the findings from that study out of Reading. They used metagenomic sequencing and they looked at the microbiome composition of around a thousand individuals were in this study. And they looked at how the microbiome was differing based on food frequency questionnaires. And they looked at a, a whole bunch of different things, but one of the interesting findings they observed was that regular coffee drinkers had greater numbers of a particular bacteria 
a particular bacteria that is known to produce butyrate, which is then, you know, of course, thought to help maintain the integrity of the gut lining and reduce inflammation, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, interesting mechanisms that are possibly underpinning all of this stuff that that you speak of. So all of this information is certainly in favor of coffee consumption. And you alluded to the fact that at the beginning of this conversation that there are some possible downsides to consider, at least for certain people, things that individuals may want to consider before determining if coffee is for them and and how much they should be consuming per day if they decide it is. Can we go through some of these? Absolutely. And I think this is the crucial part because it's really nice to give an overview of what's going on with, with epidemiology. And when we see some of these like J-shaped curves of risk and it's, it's all nice and consistent. But again, to remember, this is when we're talking about change at a population level and on average what's beneficial. That's not to go and say everyone now must drink coffee in order to be healthy. And so there's a, a few real important considerations that we can talk about. I think first is probably a few Uh, kind of acute things that go on when we consume any caffeine, uh, including coffee that we could talk about. And then we can also think about what about people who don't want to consume coffee? They don't like it or it doesn't agree with them and so on. What's the deal? Are they missing out? I think that's an important question. So first, if we look at caffeine in particular, it becomes really interesting on an individual level because we know this is one of the, the clear nutrients where there's really strong genetic differences. And these have actually been isolated. In the liver, there's an enzyme, cytochrome P450, 1A2, and that is responsible for like 90% of caffeine metabolism. And then we also have another one where caffeine exerts many of its effects by binding to certain receptors called adenosine A2A receptors or Adora2A receptors. And through differences in both of these different kind of enzymes and the genes that encode for them and these receptors, we might start to explain reasons why people have differential impacts. So the first area that I think caffeine is important to think about is the obvious one in relation to sleep disturbance. So we know that caffeine has a half-life within the blood of about two and a half to four and a half hours. So this means that after consuming a certain amount of caffeine, up to four and a half hours later, 50% of that is still there in your bloodstream. And so still needs to be cleared. And there's a big variation within this number. So we see the average is two and a half to four and a half, but that could be even longer or even shorter. And some of that is down to this individual variation in those polymorphisms in that uh, gene that encodes for that certain enzyme and for the receptor that I mentioned. And so if we have something that can clear caffeine faster, then that will change the half-life in that individual. So given that it sticks around for quite a substantial period of time and that a lot of people tend to consume quite a lot of caffeine, the timing and the dose of caffeine now starts to matter a lot when we care about sleep quality. And so the obvious one of having caffeine right before sleep is probably a bad idea, but even multiple hours earlier. And I think this is probably one of the most consistent things you get when you start talking with experts in the area of sleep science is they focus on, well, when are you taking caffeine and when is that final dose in the day? And you want to leave multiple hours. And so again, how long will depend on that person based on this kind of clearance rate? So we might have a general heuristic of, let's say, eight hours before sleep onset is when someone's final 
big dose of caffeine should come. So if they're going to sleep at 10 p.m., by 2 p.m. they should be finished. However, there's other people that if they have coffee at 1 p.m. or even midday, they can still feel the effects of that when they're trying to sleep. Other people might be able to have that or at 4 p.m., 5 p.m., and they clear it so quickly that they don't actually have negative sleep disturbance. So just being aware of that, being aware that caffeine sticks around in your bloodstream for quite a long period of time, and then also being aware that you can actually fall asleep maybe as normal, but it doesn't necessarily mean sleep quality is, is really good. So it's oftentimes worth trialing having an earlier cutoff point in the day with your caffeine and see does that make you noticeably kind of fresher, particularly if you give yourself enough time in bed but still don't feel that refreshed the following morning, which I think is, is, is quite common. So I think the sleep disturbance is probably the, the big one and thinking about when am I having my caffeine how big of a dose is that? And then at what time of the day is it? Particularly, I know a lot of people who are interested in, in lifting weights and taking large doses of pre-workout before an 8 p.m. workout. Uh, seems like a good idea to, to get through that session. Although it would be my bias and my opinion that you should probably not do so. <laughs> That's a good point you make about sleep quality because you know, we all know someone or it might be us who, who can have caffeine late in the day and still fall asleep. But is it affecting, because sleep's not a passive state, it's an active state and there are different phases. And so, you know, eight hours is not eight hours. You can have eight hours of crummy sleep and you can have eight hours of great sleep and, you know, each will leave you feeling quite differently in terms of how fresh and energized and vital you feel. So I think that's a, that's a great tip around not just thinking, okay, I have no problem with caffeine. It's not affecting me in terms of falling asleep, but thinking about whether or not it could be possibly impairing your sleep quality if you are someone that has sort of grown accustomed to consuming a lot of coffee late in the day. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's, it's an easy, quick test that people can trial on themselves, right? Just move that final big caffeine intake to a few hours earlier in the day or maybe switch to um, decaf once the afternoon time comes and then just kind of just be a bit more conscious about evening uh, consumption and just see how you feel. What about anxiety? Another one that, that I get is people telling me that they just feel anxious when they have any amount of coffee and, and it seems like there's some great variability out there in terms of how coffee affects people in this way. Yeah, uh, the anxiety is a really interesting one because oftentimes when people are unfamiliar with anxiety and depression, they unfortunately lump those two things together. And of course, people familiar will know that we're talking about very different things. And this is a great example where we actually have the opposing kind of outcomes that we see, that we have that slight risk reduction seen with depression, whereas when anxiety, caffeine-containing beverages, including coffee, can actually make those uh, symptoms worse and increase anxiety and cause that onset quite quickly. Exactly why this is, I think people are still trying to work out. But again, it probably is coming down to some degree of a genetic impact because we know people metabolize and deal with caffeine slightly differently, that you'll have on one side, people, when they consume caffeine, whether that's from coffee or otherwise, note that they feel really energetic and good afterwards. And, and that's why one of the reasons why they love consuming this. On the other side, some people note that after consuming coffee, they actually feel really jittery or nervous even, or sometimes that goes into proper anxiety. 
There does seem to be evidence that high doses of caffeine can cause anxiety. One of the interesting things that we see is that frequent consumption of caffeine actually allows people to be able to tolerate that a bit better. And that's even the case in people who are usually susceptible to it. So that might not be to say, just stay having caffeine and you'll get over it. I think that still actually persists in most people. But the degree to which that anxiety effect comes on actually gets pulled down or moderated a bit in people who have a usual intake of of caffeine consistently. Whereas if you're not used to taking caffeine in at all, and then on a certain day you have a large coffee or a a pre-workout or something like that and experience that anxiety effect, it's probably a lot stronger relative to if you were consuming it every day. So there does seem to be um, that effect, but it's at this point kind of quite well documented that there is potential for anxiety symptoms to occur after high doses of caffeine. So for people who are experiencing that, that might just be something to to moderate. And again, it could be working out a certain threshold of a dose for you that one coffee is perfectly fine, but if you have three or four, then you feel those effects. Or other people are just really sensitive to it and they they notice that effect from a, a very small amount of, of coffee. I, I've even met people who genuinely are caffeine sensitive to consuming certain uh, diet sodas and they're like they will they will get the same buzz sensation most people get from large doses from coffee from from those drinks so it very much individual and just kind of trusting how you are responding to it and finding what threshold is is most suitable to you and like you said earlier it could be that depending on someone's threshold, depending on how low that is, it could be that decaffeinated coffee is a better option and and worth trialing for for someone like that. Or there are plenty of other beverages out there. And you stated at the beginning, although there are these positive associations with coffee, it's not our only way to, to get polyphenols, antioxidants in the diet. And therefore, it's not an absolute essential part of a healthy diet. Yeah, and that's a really important point that I want to really want to emphasize. I don't want it coming across that I'm trying to push everyone that needs to consume coffee. Again, it's thinking about what is the overall dietary pattern. And again, a lot of these potential benefits we're, we're seeing are likely going to be more pronounced because of the baseline diet of a lot of people. And so if someone has a really high quality diet with lots of polyphenol rich foods and all the other good stuff that we usually advise on, lots of fiber within the diet, lots of colorful fruits and vegetables, etc., etc., getting good quality types of fats as opposed to really high saturated fat diets, etc., moderating the amount of ultra processed foods to as little as is practical, etc., then that person person's going to be perfectly fine and can have a risk reduction for nearly all these chronic diseases relative to nearly everyone else. And so probably shouldn't worry about, oh, I don't like drinking coffee and I need to force myself to do it. So yeah, that's an important point that we're trying to state here of how do we translate this into an individual's context is again, take all these things in and work out what's kind of best for you. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. A good example that's just come to mind of individual context, a good buddy of mine, Drew Harrisburg, he has type 1 diabetes. 
And there is some evidence out there, at least acutely, that coffee can impair insulin sensitivity. And he has determined, and of course, you know, with type 1 diabetes, you get very objective data, real-time data in terms of your insulin sensitivity. And he's determined that he gets much better blood glucose control when he is having his coffee in a fasted state away from food or immediately prior to exercise. So, you know, those are potentially some good tools for people if they are living with diabetes and and have poor blood glucose control and are noticing that their consumption of coffee is making that a little harder to manage. Yeah, and that's fantastic because I see it so often from people I know with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes because they take such control over this and are monitoring so many things and are really acutely sensitive to changes in diet in various ways. And they come up with really useful insights and are really in tune with what works well for them. And yeah, I think that's a perfect example. Talk to me quickly about uh, irritable bowel syndrome and, and coffee. Has there been any science looking into that? So essentially this is quite a common recommendation that's given as what we would refer to as like the first line nutritional recommendations typically in dietetics if someone is presenting with irritable bowel syndrome. So if they've gone through and and got a proper diagnosis from a registered dietitian, they've had the other potential diseases and syndromes ruled out. For example, we know it's not Crohn's, for example, because they've been tested, et cetera, et cetera. And we've arrived on a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. There's a kind of first line set of, of changes that may be recommended by a dietitian. Um, and if that doesn't work, then there's usually kind of like the second line, which would include things like a low FODMAP diet. As part of some of those early changes, some of the common ones to see would be a removal of coffee and caffeine containing beverages. And this is most likely just to reduce some of that irritation that's going to go on at the level of the gut. We know that, um, and a lot of people probably have the experience of after having a coffee that might cause them to have a bowel movement in a certain period of time after that, that happens in some people, not in others. And it can cause that kind of peristalsis to start a kind of a bowel movement. And so there's an impact there at the level of the gut. And so it's just one of those things that people should be aware of if they're being advised by a dietitian to do that. That's just part of the normal protocol of things that are taken out. It's not to say coffee is bad or caffeine is bad because at that stage, we also take out other things like spicy foods, for example, but we don't go around saying that spices are bad for your health. So it's just a a context to be mindful of, of there are certain situations where we would want to remove this certain food item or beverage in this case from the diet and irritable bowel syndrome can be one of those. That's not a a lifelong thing. Oftentimes that's reintroduced and people find a kind of threshold that works for them. But initially to get a subsiding of symptoms among other things like having someone eat a generally healthy dietary pattern, keeping fatty food consumption low, a removal of spicy foods, caffeine restriction ends up being one of those as well. So something that we have yet to explore is the, the way people are consuming coffee, the quality of that beverage. And, you know, across the board, these studies are showing risk reduction for certain chronic diseases at that two to four cups of coffee mark a day. But I'm wondering if any of them have looked into how people are consuming coffee 
Is it an espresso or a long black or is it a latte where there's milk added or, you know, a, a coffee from Starbucks with added syrup and cream, etc.? I'm sure there are some analyses that have broken down by like most common coffees to do, or that some might even um, have a definition for what they're going to call a coffee. Because I think me and you would probably both agree that some things that are coffee-based drinks now would probably not pass as a, what we would think of as a coffee. For example, like you say, if you can go into certain places now and get a a frappuccino with a, a bunch of cream and sugar and syrup and uh, almost very negligible amounts of, of coffee a lot of the time, that isn't really what we're referring to as like these three to four cups a day. Because like you said, th- these could be multiple hundreds of calories and huge amounts of added sugars and fats in these drinks. And so consuming three to four of those beverages I just described is not going to correlate positively with health. It's going to add in way too many calories into someone's overall diet, increase the amount of total added sugars that they're consuming, both of which we know are going to be deleterious over time if you're adding that on top of someone's diet. And so, yes, we have to think here of, particularly if we're working in the context of giving advice to the general public or advice to someone in a coaching setting, when we say, yeah, it's perfectly healthy for you to go and have two or three coffees a day, enjoy them in the morning, be kind of aware that how that person may interpret that might be different to how we mean that. And so getting people to still be aware of what is in this totality of this beverage we're consuming. Is this a latte with some oat milk or is this a huge mega drink of sugar and cream with a tiny splash of some coffee flavored drink down the bottom? Uh, They are both very different things. So I'm unsure if there's any kind of direct quantification and separating out on that, but I'm, I'm sure something like that like exists. Uh, but it's a, it's a very good pragmatic point for sure. The quality of those three or four cups matters. <laughs> to finish here, and I really want to get your perspective on this, I have to bring Paul Saladino into this conversation. You know, he loves to position polyphenols as a plant's, you know, natural part of their defense system. And the production of these molecules is plants are sessile, they can't move, you know, in response to UV exposure or insects predation, they're producing these bioactive defense toxins to ward off any sort of threat. And therefore, his line of thinking is that they would then have negative effects within the human body and it wouldn't make sense for them to have positive effects. What do you think about that sort of line of thinking and how can these be part of a plant's defense system but then beneficial for human health? Yeah, this is interesting. We've actually recently uh, done a couple of of episodes around some of the stuff on on polyphenols and kind of uh, cognition and some of Paul Saladino's ideas actually entered part of our conversation. And it's really interesting because, first of all, we can kind of just ignore the overwhelming evidence of looking at various dietary patterns that are really high in polyphenols and health, right? And if we focus in on like kind of mechanistically what what he might be referring to here, it, it kind of misunderstands that the thing that I think he paints as the problem is actually part of what we're seeing the benefit. So one of the really cool things about polyphenol metabolism is that they are indeed not metabolized like vitamins and minerals. They are metabolized at the liver like 
a xenobiotic, right? So it seems like this foreign molecule for all the world or kind of metabolized almost like a drug would at the source of the liver. This is kind of quite cool. And this is one thing he's maybe pointing to of like, look, this is not a nutrient metabolism. But because of this, what actually ends up happening with these polyphenols is we get the production of a ton of various metabolites for each polyphenol compound. This could be up to 100 times in number. So for each polyphenol compound, we could get like 50 or 60 times that amount in metabolites. And it seems like these are able to have biological activity all around the body in these various tissues. And it's probably why we have so many different effects from polyphenols on so many of these bodily systems that we're still trying to work out. Because not only do we have tens of thousands of phytonutrients, we now have multiple fold of that in these metabolites. And so because they are metabolized in this different way at the liver and we get this production of all these different metabolites, that's actually probably giving rise to a, a variety of these positive health benefits. Because I think what's really going on with polyphenols and their metabolites is it's not that they're acting directly as antioxidants for most of their health benefit. What's probably going on is these metabolites are getting produced or acting as signaling molecules in some way in these various tissues around the body. That's much more likely to be how they're having their effects as opposed to directly being antioxidants and cancelling out, say, pro-oxidants. But it's probably that they're having a signaling effect through all these metabolites. And so it's kind of just this beautiful irony that because they're acting in that way through the use of these metabolites, because of how they're metabolized essentially as xenobiotics at the liver is where he's having a, a cause for concern. It seems from just what I, I've seen of some of the things he, he says. So yeah, I can just conclude by saying I probably don't agree with what he says on polyphenols and I'm not sure I agree with what he says on much else either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you did you did push aside at the beginning there. The most important fact is the polyphenol-rich diets time and time again have been shown to lead to better health outcomes. Danny, this has been great. Just to finish here as a bit of a summary for everyone and, and you can correct me if I've or add on if I've missed anything here. Overall, coffee is consistently associated with reduced risk of various chronic diseases such as cardiovascular disease. This is data from large observational studies. It's an association but it's consistent it seems that the exposure level is important with that two to four cups per day being around the optimal level, probably best to consume it earlier in the day away from sleep. And if you're someone that feels anxious when drinking coffee, you can think about the threshold, but also there are other options and that's completely okay, such as tea, for example, which is also rich in polyphenol compounds. And of course, there are a whole lot of plants that are rich in polyphenols as well. So you'll have no trouble getting polyphenols into your diet if you're eating a largely plant-based diet where the foundations of your diet are from fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, whole grains and legumes. And lastly, consider what you're having with your coffee. The benefits of the coffee and perhaps even the caffeine could quickly be offset through the addition of you know, calorie-rich cream and, and syrups, et cetera. Perfect. Fantastic yeah, summary. Yeah, awesome. Cool. Danny, thank you so much. This has been a really interesting conversation, not just for the fascinating information about coffee, but also to hear from you on how to identify whether 
people are truly being objective with the science that they're communicating. I appreciate you. I appreciate your time today and I know the listeners will too. And of course, it goes without saying, I'd love to have you back on any time you'd like in the future. It was an absolute pleasure and an honor. Uh, thank you for asking me to do this. Thank you for the, the great conversation and, and for the work that you continue to do. And uh, thank you for everyone listening. I Hopefully it was useful and enjoyable. And yeah, thank you so much. If folks would like to listen to more of what you have to say or read more of your work, where's the, the best places for them to go? Sure. If they want to catch the podcast, then just it's Sigma Nutrition Radio on any podcast app. Uh, they can find all our other content on sigmanutrition.com. There we have long form written Sigma statements, we're calling them on a comprehensive breakdown of, of certain nutrition science concepts. Um, there I also have a, a newsletter if people are interested. And then on social media, they can find me on Instagram or Twitter. Instagram is Danny Lennon underscore Sigma and Twitter is Nutrition Danny. And any of those places, I'm happy to take uh, questions, comments, criticisms, etc. So that's all good. Awesome. Thanks, mate. Thank you so much. There we go. I hope you found that interesting, instructive, illuminating, and clarifying. Of course, if you did, please share with your friends and family on the socials. The more people that we can help together, the better. And while you're there, make sure that we're connected. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at plant underscore proof. Quick one before I let you go. I am often asked what supplements I take probably one of the most common questions that I get actually. So I finally got around and created an in-depth supplement guide, totally free, that you can download along with a bunch of other free guides at plantproof.com. Inside, it contains information about daily supplements for everyday wellness, along with performance supplements. The daily supplement that I personally take is a multi-nutrient called Essential 8 by NutraKind. This is a product I formulated for NutraKind alongside their team that specifically contains the eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall a little short in. Omega-3s from algae, B12, vitamin D3 from mushroom, iodine from seaweed, calcium, zinc, selenium, and iron the right forms in the right doses to complement your plant-rich diet. To find out more or subscribe to a monthly delivery, head to NutraKind.com. That's N-U-T-R-I-K-Y-N-D.com and use the code PLANTPROOF for 15% off your purchase. So in summary, grab a copy of the supplement guide at PLANTPROOF.com and if you are in the market for a daily multi-nutrient to cover your bases, head to NutraKind.com and use the code PLANTPROOF for 15% off. On that lovely note, it's time to bring this one to a close. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and for your ongoing interest in evidence-based nutrition. I appreciate you and I look forward to repeating it all again in a few days' time. Until then, remember... More plants, my friends. More plants.